Namo tasa bhagavato rato samma sambudasa Namo tasa bhagavato rato samma sambudasa Namo tasa bhagavato rato samma sambudasa I will awaken speedily for the sake of all sentient beings. For all beings, wisdom, compassion, and non-clinging awareness. So today is bubbles and foam. Bubbles and foam. And do you have, before we start on that, uh, any any questions, general questions that might uh, be suitable for all beings to hear? Yes, Barry. Kind of missed the boat yesterday. I'm willing to cover the cost of raising a witness for anybody who can't afford it. Oh, that's lovely. Y'all hear that? Barry's offered to cover the cost of uh, buying Blazing Awakeness for anybody that cannot afford it. Okay? That's, that's lovely. Thank you. It's wonderful. It's good. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Yes? Could you please uh, go into the... How do we contemplate on a text, on Dharma text? Sure. Yeah. Contemplation is a real art. Uh, and it's, a, it's an art um, to balance um, using a sharp mind, good intellect, and letting it, letting, allowing it to fall away, and letting the uh, organism, some people say the brain, but the whole organism, do the work for you. It's really, really a lovely, once you understand how to do it, it's a beautiful process, is you build up the question, like a good researcher, you build up the question, and then you learn how to let it drop and just forget about it completely. And just trust that the organism, your innate wisdom, will take care of it. You just need to do something that holds it, like a container, like a beautiful mothering container that holds the question. This is this is my... How do I you have a feel of it? Okay. It's a very it's a mature level where it's not the exercise is not as important as the question at this point. This is why it's completion yoga, really partly completion yoga. Uh, you the form as long as it's straight, as long as you are not defeating yourself in terms of your energies, and you can breathe then the question is going to pop out. You know, I mean, it's going to be print out. So the art is to take something very pithy, not pages and pages and pages, but distill it down into a deep question that you're interested in, that, that's caught your your um, fancy. Uh, Natalie, do you want to move over just a little, or if you can, somewhere? This is like three, three uh, bodies in a row stacked. Stacked up there. That's good. That's great. That means we all have to now shift. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, it does. It affects the whole planet. But <coughs> so, do you see? So it's a matter then of uh, of having a schedule. Usually, traditionally, in insight practice in Southeast Asia, in the old way, the old way, a very, very old way. And everybody's got different traditions, but this is very, very. This is from the time of the Buddha. 
is you go from the most energetic to the least energetic. So you start with walking, then standing, then sitting, then lying down. And if you don't do lying down because it's too low energy for you, then you go back to uh, walking. Walking, standing, sitting. Walking, and you kind of go around in a kind of round robin. It's like round robin, but you know, in a, in a, in a circle uh, for hours, which means you're not breaking that focus mindfulness until you can do it, until you can actually break. It doesn't matter. So the posture is important because each posture has a different quality to it. And sometimes what I've done, this is on instructions from Namjoon Prashad, it's beautiful, where we've taken contemplative texts at, at, we're contemplating nature of emptiness, is one or two lines or a paragraph in a text that you're studying or, or, or a material that's been outlined by the teacher for that day or that next day, and you walk with it, or sit with it, but walk with it back and forth. As when a smith beats red-hot iron to shape, sparks fly, fall into water, and then cease. So is his ending wrought in sequence true, and of his faring on there is no trace. Walk a bit, read it. As when a smith beats red-hot iron to shape, sparks fly, fall into water, and then cease. This is this perfect description of, of, of rising and falling of insight meditation. You see? So you take that and you walk with it. Maybe for a half an hour, and then you put it away. Stand. Up, and, then, and then look at the phenomena that you're going to look at, which maybe is rising and falling of the belly, or the breath at the tip of the nose, or perhaps it's moving of, of uh, grass, and just let it go. Just let it go in. Half an hour, 40 minutes, bright, clear, just forget it. Don't even think about it. Just trust that that information has gone in. You know, most things can be done like that. The nervous system doesn't need a lot of badgering. But the repetition, the repetition, the repetition means you're holding the question. And eventually it gets in there. So that's the way to do it. That's that's very mature practice. The form that you take up in meditation, whatever form works for you, is the form to contain the question, to help it, strengthen it, nurture it, allow it a good space to grow. When this, For instance, this environment here, this, this beautiful um, celestial realm, is the protected container by which the question grows, by which you explore, and you just trust the process. And the more hours that you can dwell in it, usually, usually, if you're not fighting and you're not pushing and you're not struggling and you're not doing weird numbers, the more hours means the more hours the nervous system has to um, be in it. And it will print out, if not this year, next year. If not this retreat, maybe a week after. You don't know. That's okay. It just simply doesn't matter. You have to actually trust the journey, that the journey is as interesting as a result. That's very rare for people. This takes some maturity. You have to trust the, the process. And actually, trust that little glimmerings are happening, but most often students don't see them. They don't have the 
what's the sharpness to see little things in dreams or things during the day as being significant because they're looking for wow. A lot of the spiritual life is simply very, very gentle and very, very imperceptible. This is this is this way of contemplating. Other ones, such as uh, next week, we start into the uh, exploration of highest yoga tantra with Hevadra. A little bit different. But in this case, although ultimately the same, but in this case, you want this very, very relaxed. But if you're not interested, if you're really not interested, then you're going to see you're, you're going to be pushing for rote ritual to try to force something to happen. But if you're genuinely interested in bubbles, and what is bubble mind? and bubblosity, and enter the world of bubbles of insight and say, I want to know the what's the insight nature? What's it telling me? What's it telling me? Then you get somewhere. But if you're not interested, or you're just kind of doing it because you've been given an exercise and it's supposed to lead to liberation, you'll have experiences. But Make sense? Do you get the idea of how to do it? Yeah. And really, it's just a matter of you put hours and hours and hours into it. I've told some people, I really, you know, I, I've had very, very profound meditative experiences while meditating, while formally meditating. But I've also had such extraordinary, lovely experiences after retreat when not trying, because five months or three months of build, building, and wonderful fruitions for months and months and months, even years. And sometimes in the retreat, for, for whatever reason, the retreat is theoretically broken. Been asked to give a class have to come out and do a visa because the, my visa bill has been now fraudulently um, taken, so I've got to come out and take care of that, what, whatever it is. Sometimes that break, so-called break, can be the best thing in the world. Against all what you read, you know, can be wonderful. Not that you want to do it, but simply because the conscious is being shaken up. It's being thrown about. And in those loose moments when you're not trying, for me and, and for others, it sometimes just happens that you stumble upon the question, the, the, the being throws things up for you. And you've got to be ready for the unexpected. The weather, the health, um, find yourself in unexpected places. Does that give you a feel for how to do it? Yeah. Any other uh, questions? Does that, does that answer sufficiently? Yeah. The more hours you can get as a stretch, the better. It's always been my feeling. If you can start, start getting a two-hour stretch or a three-hour stretch where it's back-to-back, uh, walking, standing, sitting, and you're staying bright and refreshed, and you're not going off the toilet, and you're not going off and having sitting down, having a cup of tea, or chatting. Or it's that, it's that back-to-back time, building that three sessions, four sessions a day, maybe two two-hour blocks. Uh, that's really good. That's really good. And if you get sleepy too, if you get really sleepy, use the, the sleepiness uh, to go for a walk. Make sure you're walking at that time. Or meditate on sleepiness. Just find out what this is. Maybe it's actually a, a, a wonderful opportunity for meditating on what? The phenomena of sleepiness. What is it? Don't run away from it. What is it? 
face it. Like a like a drug being injected into your veins, you know. It's just like, sorry, here. But sometimes if you're not, you know, trying to find a vein, right? Trying to get a vein somewhere, or in the neck, just. So eventually, the five hindrances, the 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 these poisonous hindrances of uh, of um, irritation and sleepiness and tiredness and disinterested and worry and agitation, become your biggest helps. Why? Because they're just energy. You know, energy. As you'll see next week in Hevadra Tantra, one of the most famous teachings of Hevadra Tantra is whatever your poison is your is your liberation. Eventually all the poison becomes your liberation. Why? All that stored energy is nothing but freedom in there. Freedom. 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 Okay, any others before bubbles? Bubbleology. There are bubble specialists, by the way. There's professional competitions, I understand now, to make bubbles, big giant, big giant <coughs> circles, and they're called, I think they're called bubbletologists or something like that. <laughs> it's professional. Yes. Um, how much is the blinking of the eye the restoring of the consciousness? Uh, not so much the blinking of the eye, but the movement of the eye. But yes, the blinking—that's a very good point. The blinking of the eye, uh, is spo- you know, whatever the reason, is supposed to wet, wet the, very good for wetting the uh, the eyeball and so on. Uh, but you'll notice that when you when there's a blink, there's also a knocking out period. It's very fast, knocking out. So ideally, what you'd like to do, although my although my my first optometrist who examined my eyes when I was about 40 uh, was dismayed, but uh, at this, but. Uh, having the eyes open, very bright and open for a prolonged period of time, is very good for meditation. Others say, no, 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 this is very bad for your eyes, very bad. You should be blinking lots for every five seconds. I don't agree. Normally, yes, normally, normal, normal daily practice, yes, it's fine. Whatever, whatever it is, it's fine. But uh, people hold all these ideas. There's good to be able to have the eyes very steady. There's a reason for this. This is why I bring this up. There's a reason why you want the eyes very steady so that this steadies out and open, bright and open, gathering light. Beautiful. Absolute steadiness. I don't know. Maybe it's doing deep deep neurological damage. You'll never, ever recover from it. <laughs> ever, ever, ever recover from it. Would it be with the focus on the outer or just... No, there's no focus on the inner or the outer. It just is. It's just make sure you're not staring at anything. You're just... You see, the thing is, then you're looking for something. You don't want to look for anything. What are you focusing on? You're focusing on awareness. You see, eventually you're focusing on awareness itself. And eventually, there's no meditator focusing on awareness. There just is awareness. And then the qualities of awareness. What's awareness? You look and you bring up, you brighten, you enhance. Not by squeezing. Although that can be done. There are practices, but... Clarity. 
luminosity, spaciousness, vividness, alertness, presence, love, openness, you know, all these qualities, compassion. You, 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 you look and you go, oh, this is extraordinary clarity. Maybe it's due to the coffee. Maybe. But that's what you look for. You see, more and more you're looking for the, the properties, the qualities of conscious that have no symbols. And if a beautiful light arises or a bindu, uh, a bubble of, of light, excellent. But it, it means the mind's being more concentrated. Is that? So It's more about the qualities than, than the visions or the, the sounds or having experience. Yes? Louder? Is the bolt, bolt, thunder, uh, an echo of what has just happened in terms of the lightning? Yes, echo is good. Yes, an echo. Yeah, it's not an echo, but it is a it is a reflection of something else. That's why it's a very very important metaphor. Is a reflection of something that's much deeper, of a mystery. The thunder is a reflection, if you wish of the intensity of the light that can break apart. This is why it's such a fantastic metaphor, lightning, has been used. And why the Dorje, or the Vajra, the symbolism of the Dorje, the Vajra, is the extraordinary power of that light to break apart the ego clingings. Not the ego. The ego has to go. But it doesn't have to go. It does not be killed. It just has to be broken asunder, broken apart, so you see it's an illusory phenomenon. You're not fooled anymore. But if you don't have a healthy ego, you can't meditate. You'll just get you'll just get blown apart. So you want to build a healthy ego. How do we build a healthy ego? By jumping into a twenty-hour-a-day vipassana retreat? No. First of all, loving kindness. Lots of loving kindness. Open up your channels. Open up the television channels so that they start becoming what. Loving kindness television channels. Yeah. And then we need to change the maps about identity. So that's where Tantra is very fast path. Body, speech, and mind remapping of habitual patterns into enlightened patterns. It's very fast. Yeah. And then you create the basis for long periods of time of easeful completion stage yogas. Otherwise, it bounces around, and you're looking for things, and it's it's hard. It can be tough. Yeah. Any others? Yes. Can you say completion as opposed to something? Or? Yes, as opposed to as opposed to. Although they come together, generation stage or what's called a rising yoga, a rising yoga generation stage, where you're building a form to remap. Whereas completion stage, there are completion stage yogas where you visualize, and that's the inner yogas of the channels, the drops, and the winds. But then there's completion stage yoga, which has no form. So for instance, if I said to you, if you do completion yoga of the... um, Mahamudra or Zogchen way of practice with uh, open, spacious, relaxed mind. People go, what do I do? What do I focus on? Nothing. Well, 
what's the purpose? Just observe awareness. Well, so what technique do I do to sell the mind? The mind should be settled. So it's, it's completion stage. In other words, you're completing the program. Uh, it's also known as perfection yoga. So why? Because now you're involved in the perfecting. Before you're reaching out for the perfecting, creating an image of perfection. Now you're in it, allowing it to, to keep unfolding. So there's, com- there's completion yoga with form, and there's completion yoga without form. So for instance, when you visualize a sphere in the heart, a bindu or tigli in the heart, a bindu or tigli, a sphere, a bubble in the heart with a glowing light of hung or something like that, uh, it's it's it can be seen, but also you can it, you can practice it without it being seen. The unseen hung, the unseen bindu. Why? The mind is very focused, very lucid, very luminous, very clear. That's a bindu. But then we use a, we use it visualized, or sometimes we actually it arises and we see it. Do you see? Those are those are completion stage yogas. But if you enter too much into the form and you get now into the thing. The visionary, the thing, it's not completion stage anymore. Completion stage means you're actually able to experience and enter into the awareness sphere, the pure sphere awareness sphere, unfolding and letting awareness liberate awareness. What's the significance of the word complete completion? Completion towards a li- full liberation. So one would, would normally do generational yoga for a time and then... And, and often in a text, they're, they're combined. Generation stage, completion stage at the end. And then sometimes texts have, uh, they're blended. We often blend them. And in this, in this case, uh, for instance, if you visualized yourself as, uh, for instance, if you visualize or try to visualize your being as a moon and water, you would be really doing generation stage. When you pass to an open, free-form contemplation of the moon and water, it's now perfection or completion yoga, because you're into dissolving. It's really dissolving. It's also known as dissolving yoga. You're dissolving all the clinging into its original, into the original state. Does this make sense? So another word for, often for completion yoga, is uh, dissolving yoga, or vanishing yoga, Mahamudra. It's all different different words, different meanings. But you'll often see that instead of the term in a text, uh, completion yoga, you'll actually see vanishing yoga. Why? Because the method is to vanish the tigli, the point of concentration of consciousness, uh, so it goes out of its clinging, out of its holding. Hmm? Completion yoga. These terms will become more evident, but it's just a matter of getting te- uh, having teachings on them. Just one more and then into bubbles. Yes. <coughs> I'm glad the cough is diminishing. <laughs> yes. Every evidence shows it is. Every bit of evidence. Yes. Contrary to what you know, might believe. Yeah. Okay. Yesterday you mentioned that uh, it has been demonstrated that, um, as I understood it, the impulse comes first, and the thinking comes after filling in the blank. Si, senor. So, uh, if you put it into the 
the structure of the eight groupings of consciousness, would you say that the, the impulse comes from the habitual eight consciousness, and then gets recognized later on by the thinking and by the deluded Yes, yes. And then creates a story. Creates a story which then sinks back and, and, and gets built into the storehouse for more. Yeah, so, so the, the eight consciousness stores the ritual patterns and the impulses unconscious because they just come out when the causes and conditions bring them out. Yes, that's right. That's right. Enter into the right into the enter into the right environmental circumstances, mental, physical, whatever it is, and it will pop out the latent habit patterns. This is why I love traveling. With I, I don't always love it, uh, but I do. There's a certain love. You know, love is not always uh, uh, traveling with students to different places because the habit patterns that they're comfortable with often get shifted. Not because I want them to be in bad moods and all this sort of thing, but it's amazing how you can shift by going into a new territory because there's latent habit patterns that simply will never get shifted unless the diet, the climate, the appearances around you, the people around you substantially change. This is, this is called pil- pilgrimage, going on a pilgrimage. If you don't do that, you may not move anywhere. So, so yes, you, you want the... So the um, well, this brings up a point, Nuno, which about insight meditation. If the intention happened, actually the organismic, this sounds a very old word, eh? I like this, very old-fashioned. The organismic intention happens before the conscious recognition. You might say, well, then how could you ever be liberated? But that assumes that the consciousness can't move very fast. But it can. And that's the, what we need to do with insight, with, with mindfulness. Great mindfulness can slow down the consciousness or speed it up to a tremendous degree to see the arising of the impulses way before normal consciousness. Recognition. Recognition. Both we want clarity of thinking but we want less thinking to allow the entouchment with the organism and the movement of energies in the organism. Let me give you an example of what it's like. If you slow and clear the consciousness way, way down, there may be no thinking, but there can be vibration before the impulse even happens. That's what you want to catch. This is a level of, of awareness that's very deep. So before the ocean or the lake throws up a wave. There's an there's an under movement happening. See? For the conditions to allow the material to arise. That's where you want to get to, where you, even the first vibrations in the channels begin to happen. And awareness alone allows it to diminish. It has nothing to feed off. So you, you can get to that. <coughs> I guess the core maybe of the question is the awareness that pairs with mindfulness 
Ah, this is where when I'm teaching this way, I don't couldn't care less, because then we have to use different systems. But you can you you use the uh, what's the word the sem the normal mind that's clarified to pick out the reflections or the glimmerings of the alaya consciousness. You see. Like bubbles. You catch bubbles that you couldn't see bubbles before. So in that sense, eventually it comes together. It doesn't really matter. It just comes together. What's depth and what's surface doesn't matter at all. This becomes a completely irrelevant division. This is why I, I'm not very keen to use unconscious and conscious because it's a division where there's no division. This says basically there's, there's a brain split. There's a split brain. You know how people say, oh, the right brain. If I only get into the right brain. The brain, brain doesn't work that way. This is just... But if I could only get into the right brain, I'd be free of what? Thinking. Well, then you've got, you've got a problem about thinking as being something mucky. Eventually, it merges so that there's not a shred of difference. You don't care about the depth, you don't care about the surface because the surface is refined enough that it allows the depth to speak and you realize that when the surface speaks in thinking, it's clear enough to be trusted. Why? Because it's connected to the depth. There's no split. Never was a split. Only if you're deeply split brain and that takes an operation or a major, major <coughs> uh, uh, accident. There's no split in your nervous system. It's all available. That's what happens at night in dreams. That's why dreams are very, very important. They give you extraordinary messages. And actually, most of what's happening during the day is just too quick and subtle to see. So we basically want to fuse all those levels together so it's seamless. There is no problem whatsoever. We don't even have to go diving into depth. It's all there. It's happening. It's happening. So no, there's no division. These divisions are artificial to understand things, but they're not. They, they become, almost get in the way to think that there's actually divisions. There's no divisions at all. The Eliac consciousness is present right now. Who's speaking? <laughs> it's the Eliac consciousness. So the, the Eliac consciousness, the storehouse, the whatever the habit reservoir, gets purified as you connect more and more with the pure awareness, it will just purify by itself. It purifies. Self-liberation. 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 Why? It Because uh, habit patterns have a beautiful way of, of unkinking, unbinding. As the awareness grows, it's a self-unkinking process because it no longer works. The habit pattern falls because it no longer works, and the awareness is keen enough to see it doesn't work. But it helps to speed it up with the Lama's voice uh, and suitable other outer environmental conditions that say, yeah, this is a dumb thing to do. <laughs> Waste of time. But this is... This is uh, That's helpful. 
Tell me how that would be. Hypothetically, you are less and less aware and you're getting more and more habits. Yes, you, you have in theory, yes, but in practice, rarely. Now, the real key, as it's been said uh, by, by many, 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 many great yogis, including Namjana Rinpoche, over and over again, the key is increasing the mindfulness to the point where it fuses with awareness. Until there's no different... Well, actually, I don't know if you ever taught me that. Anyways, I'm saying that. Where the mindfulness, there's no difference between the mindfulness and the awareness itself. That because... Uh, the because mindfulness as a component of all moments of consciousness. Now, this isn't taught very much. You see, mindfulness, sati, sati or shmirti, I like that word, in Sanskrit, shmirti, is present in every single moment of consciousness, no matter defiled or undefiled, full of emotional conflict or not. Why? Because the organism is aware. Do you see? This is an important point. Maybe even as important as bubbles. Okay? Is that every single moment, if there is such a thing, every single moment of consciousness as a component is mindful. Why? Because the organism would be dead without it. That's why you can get out of the way if something's coming at you, like a plane or a paraglider suddenly is coming at the window. You'll jump. Do you see? You'll get out of the way. We do this all the time. Unless we're too busy thinking. And you don't get out of the way. Do you see? Everybody does this. How do people survive? How does a kid, a child, survive to even teenagehood? I think it's a mystery. They should be long dead. Why? Their organism is in charge. Do you see? What's about the organism? The organism is fully mindful of the environment and the internal environment at all times. It's just a question of whether the conscious part is going to listen. That's all. Do you see? Is it listening? So what do you do in mindfulness? You listen. You listen more and more and you train to fuse the... Mindfulness is already there, which the of the consciousness that's busy getting closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to an organism that's completely aware. You have to trust that. That's really what it is. Everybody thinks you do something in meditation, actually you do nothing in meditation. You just keep removing obstacles. Just you keep removing layers until the naturalness of the organism comes out to play. It's wise, it's clear, it's vivid, it's compassionate. And it's loving. And it investigates. And you know what? Those are the natural properties of every moment of consciousness. Let them come out. That's really what we're doing. It takes a lot of training to realize that all the training was to be in the natural state of how consciousness is in its undisturbed manner. So in that sense, we need to work very, very hard at building up really good mindfulness and discovering someday that that mindfulness is none other than a reflection of the awareness that's all-encompassing in the consciousness at all times.
think the only difference that I perceive between mindfulness and awareness is that mindfulness is applied awareness, like when you have a technique and you want to unify with the technique, like Napanasati or whatever the meditation. That's right. That's right. Until it discovers the uh, unclinging awareness, which is mindfulness. So the mindfulness term that's used in the Vajrayana, in the Tantra texts, and in Dzogchen and Mahamudra, that mindfulness really means awareness. But as applied, generally speaking, as taught in the Theravadan schools and so on, mindfulness is like a technique. But but if you go to the Abhidhamma, where the, all those techniques and all that literature of Vipassana came from, that mindfulness is found in every single moment. It's there. Just build it. Allow it, allow it to come out. But it feels like you're, build, you're developing it. In fact... Uh, no, it's better not to develop. It's better just to foster it, to nurture it, so it, it's there more and more as a conscious um, activity. There's different kinds of mindfulness, too. There's a mindfulness that stays in the present, so-called present, there's no present, but there's also a mindfulness which is a very sharp tool, which is able to reflect, non-intellectually recall how something got built. That's also mindfulness. These are two very important types of mindfulness. How something gets built and being able to be in the present, very clear, very present, very aware. Investigate it. Okay. So let me read now, and as a, as a, as a lead-in, to if I read how the Buddha describes contemplating bubbles and foam, you'll see this approach to insight as an investigation, not as just watching. So listen to language very, very uh, carefully. It says water bubbles, but really I'd rather title bubbles, bubbles and foam. Bubble, bubble, toil and trouble. What is illusory about a water bubble or bubbles? Oh, soap bubbles. Soap, soap bubbles we need. We need demos. What is illusory about these bubbles? It's very good to have, you know, when you're doing lab, lab teaching like this, it's very good to have lab experiments and demos. Very scientific. See? <laughs> and the magic elixir, compound 45. Is it childproof? No. Even a child at the age of 55 can get in there. Uh huh. So this is a we call this a soap bubble. Now, what is all this about bubbles? Why are bubbles used to be an example of illusion and very useful for insight for vipassana?
Why? Have you ever played with soap bubbles as a child? Oh, yeah. Well, sure. you're going to have these tools of science as as aids to your liberation. Oh! oh. oh. That was cool. Is that cool or what? <laughs> These are good ones. This is very good. We have, we these are this is high tech, high tech soap equipment. Okay, so we'll leave these here for people to take and play. So, what is illusory about a water bubble? Very little, we should think. That's always a good lead-in. Bubbles are just what they seem to be: small spherical objects, usually found in liquids such as sparkling or boiling water. Why then are they classified as one of the twelve examples of illusion? It is helpful to look at an occasion when the Buddha himself discussed bubble-related phenomena. Like that. So scientific. When the Buddha was uh, contemplating bubble-related phenomena, <laughs> one day uh, by the Ganges, that's so why I have the scientific t-shirt on today, yes, from CERN. It's interesting how I, I was reading the other day about how a scientist was lamenting that they're finding new particles in, at CERN that fit the standard model. And they were, they were lamenting, a female, science, female physicist going, but only if we didn't, then wouldn't that be incredible? That's a good scientist, right? Darn, it's fitting the standard model. We just found two new particles that fit the standard model predicted by mathematics perfectly. They just found them, right, in, in CERN last month, actually in December. And evidence now of the Higgs boson. And other people are going, if we don't find the Higgs boson, won't that be incredible? Because then we have to like rewrite all of physics. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you see all these, these physicists going, let's not find it. Let's not find it. Let's not find it. Others are going, you know, let's find it. Let's, let's, here's the math. Let's find it. Okay, so one evening, the Buddha was sitting on the bank of the river contemplating string theory and <laughs> standard model by the Ganges when he saw a great lump of foam floating downstream. What he later said to his monks became known as the Discourse on Foam, called the Fena Sutta. And here's the sutta from the Sutta. This is now in the Pali tradition, in the Theravadan tradition. The Fena, P-H-E-N-A, Fena, the, the foam uh, sutta. Not the bubble sutta, the foam sutta. This is foam. I brought foam. I can usually carry these for a year or two because I don't shave right now. But it's always good. Okay, foam. Here he is by the Ganges with the shaving equipment. That's cool. Solid? Does that look solid to you? That's a solid, isn't it? Isn't that a solid? Yeah, solid, eh? How solid is it? Not very solid at all, is it? <laughs> how much is solid and how much is gas? Almost all gas. Very, very little solid. Okay. Oh. Yes. It's not at all. So we're gonna we're gonna explore that. 
It kind of smells like shaving cream. Yeah. Okay. Oh, monks. <laughs> this is now studying particle physics by the river. Oh, monks, suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. A man with good sight would inspect it. Now listen to how this being, this Buddha, this insight meditator is contemplating. Okay, Listen to the language. A man with good sight or good senses would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. So too, O monks, whatever kind of matter there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far and near, a monk inspects it, inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial, for what substance could there be in it? This is beautiful teachings of anatta. Anatta. Insubstantial. So when we're looking at foam, would you say it's fairly insubstantial? Mm-hmm. Yes. Just breaks apart, right? Breaks apart a little. What's in there? It's mostly gas. Yes? Yeah. But how about things that we look at, like rocks? and cups, and people, and insects, and dogs, and water. Is it insubstantial? Most of the habit patterns is is what? It is not insubstantial. It's solid, it's lasting, it's real. But if you go and investigate it, take a piece of rock. Take another rock and rub the two rocks together. What happens? Can I hear? It pulverizes, yes? A little powder. And keep pulverizing, what happens? The powder gets finer and finer and finer, and then what happens? Not just blows away. If you get it finer and finer and finer, what happens? It goes from a white powder or a gray powder or a blue powder to what? So fine, in fact, when it gets down below one micron, one one thousandth of a millimeter, what happens? It's actually a very important part with bubbles. Well, the one milli- the one micron size, the particle, is smaller, is just about as small as the wavelength of light that you're using to see. What happens to it? It vanishes. And depending on how the light shines on it, it's iridescent because it breaks up the light into rainbow colors. But you may not even be able to see it now on the table. Why? It's below a particle size, even though it's made up of zillions of atoms per particle. Zillions. We could actually we could take that particle and we could calculate size and tell you how many molecules are in there. I don't know if it's zillions or half a zillion, okay, but it's a lot. Are you following? And if we take that, we can grind it even farther. You will not see it, you'll not be able to find it unless under electron microscope. Under electron microscope, it's gonna look huge. It's gonna be giant under electron microscope, that particle. And you'll see thousands, millions of them. Grind them down even further, what happens? It becomes, it, it, all, it, it takes on quantum effects. You're not even sure if the particles are separated at this point. They're all interlinked by what? Energy fields. Well, they are anyways. 
So anyways, you get the idea. O monks, suppose that the that in the autumn, when it is raining and a big rain and big raindrops are falling, a water bubble rises and bursts on the surface of the water. A man see they, they must have not had these bubble kits in his time. Isn't that sad? Can you believe it? Meditators with the bubble kits? Sad. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a water bubble? How much of a water bubble is water? Do you know? You must investigate. How much of the bubble, the soap bubble here, How much of that is actually bubble? All of it? How much is made up of the actual, of the soap itself? Isn't that cool? Think about it. Take a look at it. You'd investigate it. You'd realize, as the Buddha did, it's very little. It's only one micron thick. That's why it's iridescent. It has all those colors. It couldn't be iridescent unless it was down the size of the wavelength of light. Otherwise, it wouldn't produce iridescence. It would just be a surface, like a solid surface. And then it wouldn't float in the air. Isn't that cool? The actual, the actual water, um, water, soap material, is only one micron, one one thousandth of a millimeter thick. That's what can float. And that's why it's iridescent, because the actual surface of the molecule is only one less than one micron thick, so that the, the light bounces off it and gets diffracted, gets broken up into the colors of the rainbow as it moves with different thicknesses. And mostly what happens, one, one of the reasons why the, wa- the bubble breaks is that the uh, water actually drops with gravity down to the bottom. And it has a hard time holding that together, especially when it hits the surface. It gets punctured. So too, O monks, whatever kind of... Now, this is... this. Listen to this. So too, O monks, whatever... Because now we need... So what? We don't care about soap bubbles. What about us? You see, the monks are sitting there. There's 500 monks. And the Buddha's sitting by the Ganges... And he's blowing soap bubbles. Or he's looking at foam, or he's having... The monks are going, what about us and our emotional turmoil? Please, that's a theoretical thing of particle physics and quantum physics and chemistry. We don't really care. What about our feelings? Okay. So he says, so too, O monks, because, you know, they're just going to go off to study with somebody else. Right? He's got to... So too, O monks, whatever kind of feeling there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a monk inspects it, and a monk inspects it, it inspects it, <laughs> ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a feeling? Do you see how now you take the bubble and apply it to phenomena of being? You take the water, 
you take the moon reflected in the water and you apply it to being. You take the splattered foam that's over Shalan's hair and Jamie's and Nicolina's clothing and so on, and you apply that to your beingness, your experience of beingness, to the suffering states and the experience of how you are. You take the echo, the lightning, the rainbow, you see? And you apply it in contemplation by doing what? Investigating, pondering, looking, seeing, hearing, until it makes sense that this feeling that's called a substance, is a thing, is an entity, is just as hollow and fleeting and insubstantial as a bubble, as a flash of lightning, as a moon in water. Do, do, do you follow? As waves on the ocean, clouds going by. This, by the way, you know, the Buddha was, you know, one of those extraordinary geniuses. Uh, every, every, every year that goes by, or every few months that goes by, and I read more, I pick up a disc, a small disc, and I go, this man was phenomenal genius. The Buddha here refers to different, two different kinds of bubbles. We're not going to go so much into that. Foam. Foam arises when gas bubbles are trapped in a liquid, resulting in things like froth milk, especially with a bialetti frother, sea spray, or the lump of foam in the Ganges, and so on. And foams can, can create the illusion of looking solid while being anything but. So that was a good example. Eh? The, the shaving cream in the hand looked very solid, but nothing. It's nothing like that. Just go like this. And it's all gone, almost all gone, except for some lumps in people's hairs and various things. But they will eventually go, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, at this moment, if you were good students, you'd be panicking, right? Oh, my God, it's never going to go away. I've got foam in my hair and shaving cream, and it's never going to go away. And maybe it's full of chemicals, and I'm going to get contaminated or something, you know? Or now I'm going to be wearing foam in my hair and it's going to go on for a day. What are people going to think? In a foam party. <laughs> foam parties. It's yeah, it's going to stain the clothing or ruin the book or whatever it is. Isn't it? Hmm? How about foam packing today? Everybody, anybody ever use foam packing? What's the foam made of? Styrene usually or um, polyurethane. What's, what is it mostly comprised of? Gas. Just gas. That's why it's so light. Gas, gas, gas. So foams can create the illusion of looking solid while being anything but. And they can fill a considerable volume with very little matter. That's why they have these. Right? Very... (laughs) Very little matter is required to... Fill this shaving can. I'm not going to respond. <laughs> Z, yeah. good, good meditator. <laughs> Would welcome all occurrences of phenomena. Whether the llama brings in shaving cans or soap bubbles or bow and arrow or exp- you know uh, a trailer full of of. Um, firecrackers, or, you know, who knows what. The, in the passage cited by the Buddha, the Buddha claims that all matter, 
all matter, all form, is as insubstantial as foam. In fact, this is a very good approximation of how contemporary physics views the constitution of matter. So now let's look at what ma all matter is according to um, the last 100, 120 years of, of science. There's not a lot there. As a matter of fact, there's 99.99999% what? Space. And the matter that fills the space is made of what? 99.9% what? Space. And anything left over that you can find is what? 99.99999% space because what's space? Energy. All space, even a vacuum, is filled with energy. It's called the vacuum energy. And guess where the particles come from? Energy. They arise out of it and they go back into it. So space, in that sense, space and energy are equivalent. There's people actually working today. I, I don't know if you know this, but this is really incredible. The vacuum energy is such that theoretically you could make, you could derive an, a, a, a renewable, infinitely renewable resource by drawing the energy out of a vacuum. And so people are working on that today. How are they going to create devices to suck the energy out of the vacuum? Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. yeah, working on it. Any object can be de decomposed into the molecules that constitute it, which in turn break down into atoms, and atoms consist of a tiny nucleus of protons and neutrons circled, kind of circled, that's an old-fashioned idea, circled, enclosed somewhere by a cloud of electrons. The distance between the nucleus and the electrons in relation to their size is astonishing. Trying to locate the nucleus of an atom is indeed, to use a phrase ascribed to the physicist Ernest Rutherford, we're going soon to the land of Ernest Rutherford, New Zealand. Like searching for a fly in a cathedral. That's about what it's like. How big is an electron relative to the size of an atom? About like looking for a piece of dust in the size of the solar system. That's about what it's like, a little bigger. The electrons surround a tiny bit of matter enclosed in vast amounts of empty space. Is it really empty? No. That's all right. The neutrons and protons and nucleus can be decomposed yet further, resulting in a disconcertingly why disconcertingly? Don't know why that word. That's that's publishing stuff. Uh, disconcertingly diverse array of subatomic particles. It could be billions. Who cares? By the 1960s, more than 100 different subatomic particles had been discovered. This multifarious... See what happens to human beings? Eh? This multifarious zoo of particles was later systematized in about 1963, I guess. doesn't say that, but into what's called the standard model. Or Susie. Is that right? Yeah, Susie. S U S U S Susie. S U S U. Standard Unified Something or Other Model. That's that model has predicted particles and what will be found since the nineteen sixties to astonishing accuracy. It's it's amazing, including the Higgs boson, which they're looking for right now. And they just found two particles, two quark particles, a a lower and upwards called a 
what's it called? It's got a strange, uh, Kappa, Kappa Bay, Kappa Beta, Kappa Beta 3, something like that. There's two different particles that are related to each other. They just found those, and those were predicted by the standard model years ago through mathematics as existing, but they've only been seen recently with the right kind of detectors. So lots of, lots of particles. This multifarious zoo was later systematized in what is now known as a standard model, which explains the entire fauna in terms of only 24 main particles, of which there's par partners and so on. And then you have string theory, which is not a theory, just to let you know. It's not a theory, it's a model. Theory is when there's some evidence, <coughs> predictive evidence. No one yet has shown that string theory is a theory, but more people are employed in string theory in universities than just about anything else. You could not be hired in a physics department if you weren't, just about if you weren't studying string, 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 uh, st uh, string theory. Isn't that neat? And yet doesn't, no one's having any proof. Isn't that fantastic, eh? There's thousands and thousands of physicists today that are employed because of string theory, but has never been discovered. And if you disagree about it, you might even get thrown out of your department. Something. Okay. String theory, <coughs> string modeling, string mathematics is a highly speculative approach, argues that the entire variety of particles found at the subatomic level can be explained in terms of just one fundamental notion. They didn't even say particle, notion. That a string of tiny oscillating one-dimensional loops about a hundred billion billion times smaller than atomic nucleus is what's down there. Ten to the twenty times smaller than atomic nucleus. Isn't that something? And it's a little moving, vibrating string that actually forms a loop in one dimension, of which it takes 11, to 11 dimensions to describe string theory. Isn't that neat? Unfortunately, at the CERN particle accelerator, they keep looking, but they can't still only find three dimensions. So it's, it's for the, th th the string theorists around the world. They don't like this. Why? Because their employment, I'm just kidding, this is stretching a little bit, their employment depends on finding more dimensions. So do you get the idea? You're looking at a solid wall of rock, you're looking at someone saying solid, and what's really there? Space, energetic space. What's your feelings made of? Those things that are disconcertingly nefarious, what is it made of? What could it be made of? Feelings. Come on, let's all put our hands up. Energetic space. Could it be anything else? Come on, play. Could it, this is what's still bubble day. Could it be anything else but energetic space? And what are we fooled by? The Buddha said it. Right? What could feelings be but what? Insubstantial foam riding down a river. And what do we make it? <laughs> my feelings, my turbulence, my thoughts, my ideals, my being, my appearance. It's what? Foam. Foam. Now, 
Let's go further. What would happen if we had six or seven atoms? All connected. Let's say we had, just sitting on it, seven atoms like this, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They're all close together. Are there seven atoms or one atom? This is, this is, the, this is what Vasubandhu back in the fourth century went through to show this is that the atomic theory is imaginary. The atomic theory in the Buddha's day and in Indian was actually not correct. It's illusory. Even then. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Right? Clustered, tight, like this. Atoms, like a molecule. So atoms make up molecules. Okay? Do we have one atom? Or do we have seven atoms? Seven. Seven. Why would you say seven? Because you described seven. Because I described seven, but what would happen? They're all connected. Mm -hmm. Therefore, are we talking about one or more? We're talking about one with many properties. And if we now take atoms and separate them apart, what do we find in quantum physics? Protons. No, we find out that even though we separate them apart, they can still be communicating. Because the electrons are not particles, they're particle waves, and those particle waves are not defined by where they are, they're defined only by the probability where they may be found, including you. So when you're moving, even vibrating, you have a wavelength. I don't know, you know that? Your wavelength is very small, but, but we used to do this in, in chemistry. We used to be able to calculate, if a person's walking one or two kilometers an hour, What's the size of the wavelength? And we'd, we'd use quantum mechanics to actually figure out what the wavelength of a person is at that, at that point. It's very, very small. But that probability of where you'll be found is not located anywhere. It's located as a probability distribution. So when we come down to these atoms being around each other, we're not quite sure where they are, but they're intermingling. Just as you're intermingling right now. So, for instance, if you're giving off odors, are you all giving off odors? Yes, of course you are. <coughs> Thank you for that demo. <laughs> and and various other things. If right, everybody's giving off breath and odor, are, are the particles of the breath, are the gases you're giving off, are they separate to you, or are they now connected to all the beings in the room? Separate or one? One. So you could not say, really, that the people in this room are actually separate entities by any stretch of reality. You could not do that. They're actually one being, except that there's a feeling of distinctness. There's an experience. There's an experience, but is it true? No. You just investigate, you'll find out that the feeling is not in accord with reality. There is no separate being. There is one beingness in the room, but it can have separate qualities, but on reflection, those separate qualities are not separate. So Vasubandhu made this argument 
in the fourth century saying, well, this, this atomism of things being separate is actually not correct. It's a miss, it's, it's a wrong concept. Huh? Is it one? Is the same? Neither. Returning to the Buddha's discussion of foam immediately after his recollections on foam and matter, he turns his attention to bubbles, the constituents of foam. Now then we get into holes. Is a bubble a hole or a bubble? It's actually a whole bubble. You know, it's cool. I looked up this morning. You can make bubbles called, they're negative bubbles, by... You know, mostly a bubble is a gas enclosed by a very thin film of so-called matter. Yeah? But you can actually make bubbles that are enclosed the opposite way, which is, I have to look this up and see how it's done, but gas around the outside. Kind of neat, eh? Mm-hmm. Anyways, this gets into a discussion of what is the whole, and does a whole... Now, you see this again, this is again um, some wonderful thinking. If you have a whole... Is the whole a real entity or a concept? Where's the whole? Is this the whole? Is that the whole? Or is the edge of it the whole? Where can you say the whole is? Well, we'll say, this is the hole. Is there anything inside the hole? Space. No, it's, it's, a, it's a hole, right? It's a hole. But we normally consider even holes as things. But the hole is what? It's a concept. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Where is the hole? Is it only limited to here? Or is now the hole the whole room? How big is that hole? Only here? Or is it the whole room? They're dependent dependent on each other. You can't describe the whole without the... Exactly. Exactly. But it's actually a concept. Whole is a concept. So the, the bubble is what? It's a hole enclosed by a one micron thin surface. Okay. So what's the majority of a soap bubble? It's a hole in space. Pretty cool. Get your head around that one. Because that's also a gas. What's in here? We say it's a hole, but it's actually a gas. Because the, because the gas inside the bubble, the bubble will collapse. Yes. But actually, it turns out it's just surface tension that holds it together. But there has to be equal pressures from the outside and the inside. What's inside this hole? A gas. Isn't that cool? But it's called a hole. And we think of it as something that's absent, when in fact it's something that is. It's a gas. So is the gas absent or not?
Does the whole exist? No. But does it? It can be defined. So now let's look at all matter, including you. Do you exist other than what? A lot of holes. What would be your feelings now? Gas or a hole? That's how insubstantial it is. If bubbles and holes are not material objects, then what are they? So we say we say a bubble is a material object, eh? But then we investigate, we find out that the bubble is really uh, what gas enclosed by one micron of soap molecules. And if we look into the soap molecules, we see it's mostly space. And we look inside the gas molecules, inside we see it's mostly space. So it's mostly a hole, right? So holes are important. But what's a hole? It's now a concept. If bubbles and holes are not material objects, then what are they? They are mere absences, places where some surrounding medium such as water or soap solution is not. Isn't that cool? It's where it isn't. So we say that the inside of the soap bubble is where the soap is not. The outside is where it's not. So the bubble becomes a hole in what? Space. Even though they deceptively look like familiar objects, such as marbles, baubles, or crystal balls, unlike these things, bubbles and holes are not material objects. They're concepts. There is nothing a bubble is made of. What's the bubble made of? We say the bubble is made up of gas, and the bubble is made up of soap film. But we know that's not true, because it's when we prick it, it all goes, right? So really, the majority of a soap bubble is what? Let's try it again. This is, this is not so easy to, to get your brains around. What is the soap bubble really? You can actually see the water gathering on this big one on the bottom. It's a temporary hole. We so badly want it to exist. It's not made of anything really but an absence of what? It's, it's an absence of, mostly, it's an absence of what? Soap. Can, can you see that? It's just an absence of soap. What are your feelings? An absence of what? Go take a look at them. So you listen to the language of the Buddha. Listen to the language of the Buddha. So too, O monks, whatever kind of feeling there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a monk inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. What is a feeling made of? You have to find that out. That's insight. If you don't, you'll be bewildered. I must do it enough times until there's very clear resolution as to what a feeling, a sensation, a state of mind is, and what phenomenon is. Otherwise, there's bewilderment. 
You must ponder it, you must investigate it, you must probe it, you must use mindfulness. The water molecules have to be arranged in a particular way for there to be a bubble. And this is all the bubble can possibly depend on for its existence. Despite looking like ordinary objects, they are not. Bubbles are not particularly ordinary objects. Now, it's possible... How are we doing for time here? That's good. It's possible that you could say, well, wait a minute, there are feelings. So let's do an atomic theory of feelings. Okay? We know what kind of feelings do we have according to, let's, not so much Western psychology, but, but, but Abhidhamma uh, meditation psychology. We have how many feelings? It's really easy, isn't it, for meditation? We have pleasurable, unpleasurable, and neutral. That's it. That's all there is. Three. Kind of makes it easy, doesn't it? All the other ones that we call feelings can be subsumed into those because that's all there really is. All the rest is what? Foam. But we have an atomic theory now which says, okay, there's pleasurable, unpleasurable, and neutral. Hmm? Or somanasa, domanasa, and upeka. We have three different feelings. Do you like that? How do you feel about that? It's not like a computer program. How do you feel about those feelings? So we say, oh good, now we know what the feelings are comprised of. Correct? Okay, let's build it up bigger. We can make more feelings by now bringing in mental states. You see? We could say, okay, well, we know the feelings are, are interpenetrated by, by mental states, and we can enumerate 89 or 121 if we add on transcendental. Let's just say 89. So now we have 89. It's like a zoo. It's like a particle zoo. Yeah? Like a subatomic particle zoo. I think those... I think that foam is going to last forever. Where is it? <laughs> On my shoulder. Like a pet. Oh, like a pet. It could last. Like it could be made of uh, some synthetic polymer. Just there for years. Years. Okay. So now we have an atom. We have an atomic theory of feelings. And that means that every time you look, you will find what? Pleasurable? unpleasurable or neutral feelings, correct? Are you satisfied now? What would happen if you look at neutral? What would you find? Take, so that's what you do. Now you go and you look for neutral feelings and you watch the rising and passing away of neutral feelings. What are you going to find if you investigate the neutral feelings? Is this satisfying? Feelings could be seen as coming in different kinds, pleasurable, painful, or neutral, and in different sizes. Isn't that right? We have different sizes of feelings. Big feelings and small feelings. It's just like atoms. We can classify them. We have how many atoms right now in the periodic table? We're up to about 113, I think. And mysteriously, about 118 floating around. Most are just, many are just transitory, a fraction of a second. That's all they last for. So here we have three, but then we have intensity. How about a small, intense one and a big, giant emotion or feeling, right? Or, or pain. Really painful, very, very little pain, 
and hugely pleasurable and just a little bit pleasurable. It's atomic theory. On this account, an important goal in life appears to be to maximize the occurrence of pleasurable feelings and minimize the occurrence of painful and neutral ones. Isn't that right? We maximize the pleasure, we minimize the displeasure or the pain. Is that, is that correct? Okay. Our pursuit of happiness seems, therefore, to entail the striving for an ideally unbroken succession of pleasurable feelings as if high and of as high an intensity as we can achieve. Isn't that correct? The better, the better, the better, the better. Yeah? Because if one, because what happens? What happens with pleasure? Normally for a normal healthy human being, if you experience a pleasurable sensation, like an amazing coffee, don't you want the next amazing coffee? Mm-hmm. Isn't that the case? You're looking for the next amazing coffee. What happens if you don't find the next amazing coffee. Most people get disappointed and then they have to go searching for the next amazing coffee. What happens if they never find the next amazing coffee? They may go looking for the next amazing wine or beer or gemstones or fabrics. Now, this is a problem because what happens is, and and there was a philosopher, um, was he a philosopher? Yeah, uh, Jeremy Bentham. He called this the hedonic calculus, the mathematics of pleasure. Once you find something pleasurable, that becomes your event horizon. That becomes your standard. And then it's the next, and then it's the next, and then it's the next. And where is it going to end? Could you possibly not acknowledge it as an event? You you could, but most most beings do acknowledge it. You could if you were a good Buddhist meditator, but most beings acknowledge it as what? A moment, an event, a thing, right? Pleasure as being a thing. So this this is very this is very crucial about bubbles. The bubble is insubstantial, and doesn't last very long, right? But the feeling is insubstantial and doesn't actually last long. But we do what? We're trying to maximize pleasure. So we try to push away pain or unpleasantness and maximize the duration of the pleasure. It means we let the espresso or the the cordato sit in our cup as long as possible to stretch it out. Now we biscottis, cookies, whatever possible to get that cake, to get that drink to stretch itself out as far and as long as possible. But we know it's doomed. We just know it's doomed. It's going to be over. So what happens to feelings? Are they real or are they just blown up bubbles? The event horizon gets bigger and bigger and then it collapses. And it gets bigger and it collapses. So what are these feelings and these feelings of being but nothing but bubbles that get pricked and blow apart and foam? Hmm? Do you see? But as our expectations get bigger and bigger and bigger, what's eventually going to happen? We can't do it. We can't maximize. It's going to fall. See? Get the idea? Just like a bubble. It's a very good analogy. Some very good Western science around this is the get you get closer, you want more and more and more pleasure, it's eventually going to collapse. How much can the nervous system handle? What do people do with drugs? We were talking about drugs this morning. 
drugs, 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 drugs. The next high, the next vision, better than the last. The next meditation experience, better than the last. Deeper, bigger, fuller, richer. Do you see? We, we all do this. Well, some of us do. But you see, in the same way as there are not two kinds of stuff, water stuff and bubble stuff, is the water stuff of a bubble separate than the bubble? Can you have a bubble that's just the water and not the gas? No. You must have the absence, the whole, to have the what? The bubble. They're interdependent. But only water stuff, in the absence of which constitutes a bubble, pleasure can be seen as the absence of pain. So here's one way of looking at it. The pleasure is the absence of pain, it's just a bubble. Or the other way around, pain is the absence of pleasure. Something could be regarded as pleasurable not because it's accompanied by any intrinsically pleasurable sensation, but merely by being accompanied by the absence of a painful one. So there's where we get into insight. When you investigate pain or pleasure, pleasurable or unpleasurable, a cessation, that's actually technically dukkha or, or sukha in, in insight meditation. That is, if it's a physical sensation, is it pleasurable or unpleasurable? Painful or, or not painful? See? And can you determine which one is which? In the case of mental events, is it pleasurable, unpleasurable, or neutral? Now we're getting into very good atomistic meditation on feelings. When you have pleasure, is it simply because you're not experiencing pain? Or when you have pain, it's simply because you're not experiencing it. Go find that. Go find that out. That's one you can find out fairly quickly. Or many of you can. Just go for it. What actually is this thing called pain? What's this thing called pleasure? According to Tsongkhapa, great yogi, great philosopher, great scholar, he said in his exposition of the stage of the path in the 14th century, moreover, quote, moreover, your current pleasant feelings which cause attachment to grow. This is more pleasurable, more pleasurable, more pleasurable, more attachment. Hmm? If something's really pleasurable, is that right? Would you like more of it? Mm -hmm. Who would deny that you wouldn't want more? If it's pleasurable, you'd want more of it, right? Oh, no, I don't want any more. Great cup of coffee, right? Great cup of coffee, and you go, I don't want any more of that. Throw it away. Let's never get it again. As a matter of fact, I would like a really bad coffee. I like some really good, I like some excellent second-rate beans now. How many people do that? We do. Right? We do. Which cause attachment to grow mostly arise only upon the relief of suffering. Pleasure does not exist naturally independently of the removal of suffering. Does that mean that suffering exists, pain exists? No, he's not saying that. He's saying that upon the removal of pain, there's pleasure. But that doesn't mean that actual pain exists. 
For example, if you suffer because of too much walking, a pleasant state of mind arises when you sit down. Then, as the earlier then as the earlier intense suffering fades, pleasure appears to arise gradually. Yet sitting is not naturally pleasant. Is this true or not? Yet sitting is not naturally pleasant because if you sit too long, suffering arises again just as before. I hope you get to experience this. How long can you sit for before it becomes unpleasant? How long can you stand for before it becomes unpleasant? What's driving the organism? Is it being driven towards pain or is it being driven towards uh, towards pleasure? And when it's not pleasurable enough, what do you do? What happens to the organism when it's not pleasurable enough? In a split second, it moves towards what's more pleasurable. Now we're talking insight. Now we're talking vipassana. Incessant. Incessant drive for what? Happiness, 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 happiness. Clinging. Thus we should not think that a pleasant feeling we have sitting down after walking all day is an accumulation of pleasure atoms. You see how phony this can get, how weird this can get? Of accumulated pleasure tokens, pleasure atoms, or I've accumulated pleasure moments, or, or, or um, pain moments, like, like almost like things. Yeah. What did you say? I deserve it. I deserve it. No, not so much psychologically, no, no. Just stacking up of things that the pleasure is a thing and the pain is a thing that you can actually accumulate like tokens or coins. Rather, it is a result of the gradual lessening of pain, which is what? A whole. Isn't this cool? I don't know if you're getting this, but the, the lessening of pain to pleasure is an absence which is actually a whole, not a thing. See? Or a bubble broken and now space filled with what? Pleasure. But is the pleasure a thing? No, it's an absence. What do we normally make it? An atomic, materialistic thing. This is very good. We make things that aren't there things. We make space and holes that aren't there things. You have to see that. You need to go take a look and see if that's true. How do you do that? A lot of mindfulness and looking again and again and again at what? Foam rushing down the river? No. Foam of experience moving through your experience to see what it's made of. But it would be just as hasty to conclude that therefore pleasures are simply the absence of pain atoms as it was to conclude that bubbles are the absence of water molecules. What we have to realize is that the situation is completely symmetric and hopeless. No, I put that in. Suppose I promise to take you out for a fancy meal in the evening and then tell you just before that I did not manage to get a table. (laughs) We're going to the most expensive restaurant in all of Guatemala. Oh, just before we're leaving? Oh, excuse me, couldn't get a table. How would you feel? 
having a normal dinner. Instead, you might now be annoyed, even though objectively. So in other words, we couldn't get a table. Let's go to the corner store and get some cheese whiz, cheese crackers. How would you feel? It's okay, right? It's all food. Maybe some potato chips, corn chips, tortillas. Although objectively, nothing's changed. What's happened? What, what's actually happened? We're, we can't go to the wonderful restaurant, but we could go around the corner and get some cheese-coated potato chips for supper. What has actually happened? All that's happened is what? The expectation has collapsed, just like a bubble. Hmm? And what's actually collapsed? Absence, not a thing. Cool, isn't it? So nothing's really changed. You take less pleasure in your dinner because of comparing it to the delicious one, correct? But that's just comparing. How about someone, how about, now this, is my, this would be a guilt trip that my mother or father would play on me when I was a child. They tried, it didn't work. But how about someone in India, in Calcutta, outside of Calcutta, digging around in the garbage heap for a scrap of food because they're starving to death? What would you say to that? Would you feel better? Yeah. Those cheese crack those cheese those cheese tortillas are much better than hunting around in a garbage heap for a little scrap of food. Maybe some wilted lettuce hmm? with bugs crawling on it. Hmm? In other words, the pain you experience is not due to the fact that your dinner is intrinsically unpleasant. The pain is merely due to the absence of pleasure that might have been. Bubbles, bubbles, bubbles. But now we have to ask ourselves which position is the right one. Are pains or pleasures the basic building blocks of our emotional life? That there seem to be equally good arguments either way might point to a difficulty with an underlying assumption, namely that there are any atomic feelings at all. This you have to find. Are there any real feelings? Are there really any sensations? Are there really any mental states? Are there any real perceptions at all when you go and look as the Buddha described? Investigate, ponder, see. Otherwise, you end up in an atomic theory of life of real entities. This is why the bubble metaphor is really important. Right? Foam. Pain and pleasure are interdependent. That is true. That's, that is much more uh, elevated. That pain and pleasure are not distinct. They're actually an interdependent commingling. Can't separate them out. And by the way, we can see this. The sadist and the masochist, the masochist can spend their days hunting for something that's painful, as pleasurable. Do you see? And the sadist gets pleasure by inflicting pain. It can get twisted. The map can get twisted. This is what is commonly known as dukkha. Because we all do this. What do we do? We do things that are actually unpleasurable, but appear to be pleasurable, even though we often know they aren't. We go, oh yeah, it's good. No, I didn't like it. You have a sugary drink, 
You feel awful. By the way, do you know that sugar's, sugar, sugar is being, I was just reading about this yesterday, so I've been watching this now develop for about 15 years. Sugar is being proposed uh, by scientists at the University of UCLA, um, and it's, it's being worked on at government levels as a banned substance like tobacco or uh, alcohol. Not a banned substance, a controlled substance. Why? It's that much of a health risk. But the pleasurable, the sugar drink is wonderful, eh? It feels good. Mm-hmm. But can you feel what it's doing to you? Did you see? Pleasure would not be very pleasurable if there was no pain to serve as a contrast, nor would pain presumably be experienced as pain in the absence of pleasure. So therefore, you would conclude, we need pain, right? To have a marker of what pleasure is. Is that true? For most people, yes, actually. Or a refined ability, of, a refined experience of both. Like to feel very small amounts of pain so that you know what very small amounts of pleasure are. Yes, you could do that, but would that be freedom? No, but that would heighten your ability to discriminate. To discriminate, yes. But then you'd still be going after pleasure. Without the cessation of clinging, it's an endless morass. It's just simply hunting for more and more and more happiness. And if you just keep changing the dials to one thing or another, right? That's all it is. You would have to drop the event horizon. All event horizons. You have to pass beyond the event horizon to what? Non-clinging awareness, where neither pain nor pleasure matters. And some of you have done that. You've had the experience of being in pain? How many have had the experience of being in abject pain, and something comes along to distract you, and it vanishes? Anybody? Isn't that something? And it can happen in how fast? Yeah, with, with less than a second. I used to play this trick. Uh, I couldn't only play it so long on students in the Arctic. We were right near the airport, so the window where I used to teach art history, you could just look and see a little touch of the tarmac. We had one of the largest, uh, longest airports in the world up in Iqaluit. It could take actually a space shuttle. It was one of the three landing site, alternative landing sites for the space shuttle. It was built by the U.S. military. It never happened, but... Okay? So very common we get big jets coming in to refuel or military jets coming in or regular jets. And when they be like this during art history, you know, this, this first of all, what was a common drink for uh, students in the dormitory to be drinking, for, to have, be having for breakfast? What was a soul breakfast? Should I tell you what soul breakfast is in the morning? Hmm? Coca-Cola. That's all. Morning bre- party till four, have Coca-Cola, and then come to come to school, come to college. So what happens at ten o'clock? This is the face. Watch. And you sometimes hear this at the desk. Really, literally, especially when the lights go out and you're showing slides. It's just instantly you turn off the slides. So I, I got the opportunity to teach Dharma without ever using any Buddhist terms. It's lovely. I used to do this day in, day out. So I said, well, uh, so I turn the light on and say, who's sleeping? Oh, man, oh, I feel, oh, I can't pay attention. Can we just, like, 
go now. I don't know what difference. These are adults. So called adults. So what I do every once in a while is is when the lights were off or we lights were on, is I go, Oh, 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 oh my god. Oh my god. This is very thespian, right? We can get away with it because I'm from another culture. They don't know that it's thespian. Oh, oh, oh my god, there's a seven forty can you see the seven forty it's 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 missed the runway. It's coming here. And they'd all get up off their seats because they couldn't quite see out the window. Get off their seats and they get up and they take a look. Where? And I say, sit down, how do you feel? They go, wow, we're awake. You see? What was it? This is a bubble. Absence of bubble? Gone. Just like that. And they go, wow, we're awake. Called adrenaline. Pleasure and pain are not substantial components out of which our emotional life is built. Do you believe it or not? For some people, all that is substantial is their emotional life, their feelings. Others, it's their body, it's their appearance. What else? For some, not very many, it's their perception, how they see. If I don't see clearly, then I don't feel it's me. You know, all these kinds of things. So which one is it? Isn't that a statement? Do you believe that? Pleasure and pain, that is uh, dominasa, somanasa, and upeka, pleasure, unpleasurable, neutral, are not substantial components out of which our emotional life is built. They are what? Absences. They're holes in space. They're thin little films made up and inflated into giant bubbles. And you go, right? Just like when I first blew these. Wow! Wow! Look at that. What are you concentrating on? What's the concentration on when you go, wow? One micron of iridescence around the edge, but you go wow at the absence of the bubble, the hole. Do we ever do that? When you look when you look in a Coke bottle and it's empty, you go, wow. When's the last time someone did that? How about the crystals in, in, in Laurel's room there? People walk in, they see the crystals, the first thing they see is Whoa! Look at those crystals. But did you look at the whole room and go, whoa? How about how about my feelings? My feelings. Did you walk in the room and look at the llama and go, whoa, look at those pants. Look at those iridescent day-glow pants from, from outer space. No. The crystals. And people touch the crystals. Whoa, look at those. And what's, what's missing? The space in the room, the quality of the light in the room, the candles. Do you see? Whoa! Over what? Over what? Little film. One micron of experience. And not what was really there. By the way, it's really fascinating. When I say to someone, they come and touch the soap bubble, and I say, so, or not soap bubble, but the, rock, the minerals. Like, oh, look at that. I go, it's just light in your mind. Or I just say, it's just crystal. I go, they, don't, they just ignore me. It's wonderful to watch the llama just being completely ignored. 
Like, yeah, but, oh, whoa, shut up. Whoa, oh, go, go away. Whoa. I'm going, As you're just touching um, light, uh, reflecting. Oh, be quiet. Look at those crystals. Rather, they are interconnected entities like the bubble in the water. If one increases, the other is reduced and vice versa. Attempting to eliminate one in favor of the other is a hopeless enterprise. I want more pain. I want more pleasure. It's endless, isn't it? Isn't it endless? How many things do you want? Do you collect all the coffee in the world? Try it all? Yes. No. I mean, where's it going to end? Try all the wines of the world? Where's it going to end? I know people that like that. Their entire life is consumed with whoa and the next whoa, collecting, buying, collecting, buying. Where's it going to end? I hope you realize that we do our my studies. I, right? They're they're also pleasurable. We also study things that are rotten, eh? Crappy stuff. Want to know why? And sometimes we find great mysteries in that. But it's about discrimination, increasing discrimination, collecting for what? Just as the Buddha did, to see, to understand, to <coughs> ponder, to evaluate. Yeah? For all. Thus, we thus see the Buddha's similes of the foam and the bubble expose two illusions that come up all the time in our everyday interaction with the world. We think that matter is solid, even though it is anything but. In fact, considering the elusive nature of its fundamental constituents, even foam seems substantial by comparison. Even foam seems substantial by comparison to what we know about matter, space, and energy. We also think that feelings are solid, that what gives us pleasant feeling now will continue to do so in the future, that to evade pain and suffering we just have to increase the amount of pleasurable sensations. Isn't that right? Isn't that the agenda of our society? If you want to avoid pain, all you need to do is blow more pretty soap bubbles, correct? But we all, how many of us know that that actually doesn't work as mature adults? And how often do we do it? Again and again and again and again and again and again, right? All through our lives, going, I will just continue to purchase or accumulate pretty interesting, pleasurable things, right? And that's our North American ideal of freedom. And it isn't. It's killing people. It's killing people. Sugar is a good example. Any, any addiction. To increase the amount of pleasurable sensations, we just need to increase it. Thereby outnumbering, if not completely obliterating, the un unpleasant ones. Isn't that what we do? Obliterate the unpleasant sensations. Obliterate it. What do we do in Vipassana? We don't obliterate anything. We take a look to see what's there. If it's painful, we investigate. If it's pleasurable, we investigate. Why? We're looking for global principles not to increase pleasure. The agenda about insight is not to increase pleasure, it's to increase freedom. So what is nirvana? It's not a thing, it's an absence of clinging. Interesting. It's all. 
Nirvana, you'll never find Nirvana. You'll never find it. But it can be experienced. Why? It's the absence of clinging, not the absence of pain. Nirvana, enlightenment, does not give you a privilege of being free of pain. It's a freedom from falling into the trap that there's something wrong with pain. To be an organism on this planet is to have pain. But you don't have to be caught in the illusion that it's actually substantially real. The absence of clinging is nirvana, is freedom. But if we consider the nature of pleasure and pain, we realize that this feat cannot be done, not just because we are too feeble or incompetent, but as a matter of necessity. We can't obliterate it. Why would you obliterate it? You know, I know mo- many meditators that actively, right, actively, their whole entire program is to obli- obliterate pain or unpleasurable feelings. That's not the Buddhist teaching. It's not Buddha Dharma. Can't be done. But you can get beyond the illusion of that there's an atomic theory of pain and pleasure to what? The illusory bubble like nature of all experience. The illusory like bubble nature of experience, including pain or pleasure. And what's the one that you would like to increase? Non clinging awareness, the natural abiding quality of the mind that's neither in pain nor in pleasure. It's called awareness. Awareness doesn't care if there's pleasure and doesn't care if there's pain. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't care. It's there whether there's pain or there's pleasure. And what's the quality of awareness? Go find out. You'll find it's vivid, it's clear, it's pristine, it's luminous, and it's compassionate. And is it anything at all? Nope. It's the absence of clinging. That's why it is continuous. Seeing through this later illusion is very likely to change the way in which we lead our lives. Good point. It's the illusion. It's the illusion. It's the illusion. It's the same as this. I sure hope they're going to (laughs) last. Sure hope they're going to last and stay beautiful. Guess what happens? They don't. They don't. They don't. Focus on the space. Focus on the nature of the space. That's closer to the non-clinging than the things, than chasing after things. Yes? Very often in literature, the, the attainment is said to be by not wanting it. Like, not wanting it, you get it. Like, non clinging, you get a, the absence of pain. Do you believe that? But it's not like a computer program. How do you feel about that? 
will, will lead to a, to a very subtle, you know, delusion that, okay, if I, like most meditators probably do, like, I'm gonna go to non-clinging, but in the back of their minds, there is like an agenda. Absolutely, you're absolutely correct, yes. So one path is that if I eliminate all the bad things that cause pain or suffering or clinging, I get rid of it all. It's false. So the Buddha rejected that. He was getting down to, was it one rice grain a day or one rice grain a week, right? That was the whole agenda. Less and less attachment means less and less clinging. And he found that's not the case because he didn't know the root of clinging. He didn't know, he didn't even, it wasn't even the question. Was, if I become non-attached to life, I become enlightened. But what do you become attached to? Negative towards life. That wasn't that. That's what he found out. He found out this doesn't work. But for some, that's a very important part of training. This is why it's important that we don't go wrong, because for some people, the path of removing that which causes confusion, addiction, uh, pain, uh, immorality, all these kinds of things, is a very powerful path for a lot of people. That's why it's considered the tantric path is for very few. It's for very, very mature beings. Why? Because they get very confused. Oh, good, now I'll have orgies. Hmm? Oh, good, uh, there's wine on the shrine. Well, it's about pleasure. If we just drink more wine, isn't that the tantric path? We feel loose. No. It's a very, very, it takes a very mature mind to see that within the pleasure, it's empty that actually if you take on bliss, which is very, very difficult, yes? The howling winds. Did you see? To actually use bliss as an avenue for empty, for coming to emptiness is very, very difficult because it's your worst enemy. It's, your, it's the worst addiction of a human being. So what do we do in tantric? We elevate it. What do we do? We learn how to be extraordinarily blissful. We get all the channels open, and the bliss is like bliss that nobody's, nobody even can imagine. Maybe heroin. I don't know. I've never taken it. I've never taken a hard substance. Never taken a drug in my life that's hard. Maybe codeine, put it in a pill. That's it. I don't know. But people that people that have taken heroin and, and cocaine have told me, oh, it's amazing. You're just in love with the whole, you know, whole world. But the blisses, as to to realize the empty nature of bliss, is a difficult but very quick path. But eliminating all the obstacles and everything that potentially could entice you or bring you into confusion and conflicting emotions, and so on, right, is sometimes a very good path for beings. They need to do that. So we have to be very, very careful that we don't go wrong. But it can, it's still clinging. No matter what, it's still clinging. But it can be very, very good for some that are highly addicted beings to sensations and things and uh, certain circumstances. Very, very good. Even those that aren't highly addictive have taken that path and they found it wonderful. But then they usually practice both tantra and a monastic kind of path. This is a, this is a longer discussion. But the point is 
is that just because you avoid things is not liberation. It's just avoidance. But it could support you. It could be very supportive for your growth. How many of you are strong enough in retreat to go to the marketplace and not be bewildered and not caught in pleasure and all the normal stuff that comes up? Not many. So we're going to postpone it till next week. Better to leave it one more week, I believe. Because the howling winds may come up and I'd rather have you have more strength for the howling winds. It's literally howling winds. As soon as you leave here, or you can have it here too, but as soon as you leave here and go to the marketplace, the bewildering jewels of fabrics and colors and, and salespeople, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. The howling winds of habit patterns take over. How even is your consciousness? This is a good example. Howling winds, the bardos. Often in the bardo experience, there's howling winds, frightening howling winds. What is it? The winds. All the breath, shaken up, turbulent, turbulent, turbulent states. So a few more things. Now, quarter to 11, just a little bit longer. Can you ha- hold on a little bit longer? Okay. Why the bubble? Why the foam? There's other reasons. Because not only is it about, about insight, but when the mind, when the consciousness becomes more and more concentrated, just like the concentration of foam, of uh, soap. The consciousness will, one of the signs that arise, one of the signs that arises, for some of you, will be what's called in Sanskrit the bindu, or in, in Tibetan the tigli. And bindus and tiglis are actually fairly important in the meditative life because they indicate uh, an increasing concentration of awareness. Okay. And they will form. Why? Well, one of the reasons physiologically is as the physiology is purified out and accords with concentration, there is a harmonious sphere. There is a spherical nature of awareness that develops, contained, contained but open, which is described as a bindu, a point or sphere of consciousness that is luminous and secreting, because one of the meanings of the word bindu is to secrete wet substances. The hormones are secreting well, and the consciousness is pristinely clear and bright and open. It's called the bindu. Sometimes we see bindus, sometimes we don't see bindus. Sometimes we use bindus or spheres of light as concentration objects to bring about the bindu, whether we see it or we don't see it. Okay, I want to bring that about. So bindus in, in all systems of meditation are actually pretty important because they're both meditation objects and they're things that they are, not things, they are experiences that naturally arise and vanish like bubbles, but indicate which uh, uh, elemental quality of earth, water, fire, and air, and space is predominant. They can represent which Buddha qualities are predominant, all kinds of things, and they're very elemental. So out of pure space awareness, the first thing that emerges is the pure color light often as 
bindu-like light. You means you're getting closer to very, very depth of pristine awareness when the bindus start to arise. But not always purified of the emotional turmoil, unfortunately. But should, in theory. Okay. So just so you know that that other side of it is a contemplation of bindus uh, is important, but that, but uh, this emphasis here is on insight. Without the bindu, insight is very difficult. Why? Because there isn't a concentrated mind, there's not balanced hormones. See? That too is the bindu. So bindu is used loosely and specifically for different experiences. But don't just think of a bindu as a sphere of glowing light. The glowing sphere of light indicates a certain predominance of energy balance, hormonal balance, which can be very good for meditation. Ideally, for insight. What do we want in terms of, of bindus? Spheres of light. For, ideally, for insight. All five. Count them. Five. We want all the five lights balanced for insight. Not just red, not just green, not just yellow, not just uh, white, not just blue. We want all the lights beautifully balanced together into one complete mandala of sphere of awareness. And that is ideal. That's your ideal balance, not just one. And if there's too much of one, what happens? You die. Get too much of one, boop, you're gone. Don't do that. Not, not right now. So I think that's plenty, just as an introduction. Be more next week on Bindus, because you're going to be working with Bindus next week. But for now, today, I'd really, uh, I'd strongly suggest work with bubbles. Bubbles, bubbles, bubbles. Bubbles are one of the great, great um, ins, gates of insight. Bubbles, bubbles, bubbles. Everything about bubbles. Bubbles and foam. Bubbles and foam. That's plenty. Don't want to say this? No. Pot of rice boiling. Classic nimitta. Classic sign of insight. Um, maybe you've had that. Rice boiling. Foam bubbles coming up. Good. Good sign. That means you're getting going towards anatta. 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 If it's moving very quickly, anicca. 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 So sometimes there's a rising of the, of the um, pot of, of rice. Everything's moving faster. Faster and faster and faster. All the states, all the emotions, sensations, perception. Boom, 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 boom. Just like foam. Just like foam. Just like foam. Can you blow a soap bubble without clinging to it? Try it. See if you can do it. Don't care if it forms, don't care if it does form, you don't care if the soap bubble breaks, you don't care where the soap bubble goes. Do you see? Try it. How much clinging to, I must have a soap bubble. Oh good, there's a soap bubble. Does the soap bubble care? Does the soap care if it forms a bubble? Does it? 
Does it care if it lasts? Does the soap bubble go, watch, the soap bubble's ready to break? Yeah, it touches, it touches Jamie's nose. Oh no, I'm going to break. Does the soap bubble do that? Does it? No. Does the soap bubble go, oh, the duration's not long enough? No. Oh, how about this? I just died. No. So now go look at your states of emotions and your feelings and sensations and go, watch, is the sensation going, oh my God, I'm going to die. No, sensation vanishes. Does you ever hear a voice going, oh no, the sensation in my left elbow is going to pass away. Please don't let it. How about the emotion, eh? Does, does, does an emotion scream like that? You know, does, 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 Is the emotion that's screaming or something else? Oh, please, I want to stay depressed. Oh, I'm lonely. If I could only stay lonely for longer. Or does it go, oh, please, end my loneliness. Is that, is that, does that what happens? So you have to look at this. Do the, do the pants scream out and say, oh, look, look how bright I am. They the pants don't, do they? They appear to. They appear to. <laughs> but they don't, do they? Do pants usually speak and go, look at me, I'm so bright, I'm going to, you know, they don't do that, do they? No, do, so do emotions and feelings and sensations and states of mind do that? No. Uh, I'll see people for a little bit, just for um, maybe 20 minutes if you wish. And if there is a wish to, to have um, some interviews tonight, I can do that. Don't mind. There will be no uh, class tomorrow morning, but there will be uh, tomorrow night. Okay? There will be one tomorrow night here. Okay? But tomorrow not tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow How many night? times? Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night there will be a class. Tomorrow morning there will not be a class. I will stay behind to see a few a couple people if you wish. I like to actually I like you to check in. It's really good. I really find that wonderful. And this evening uh, I'll show up um, at the other location uh, at the other location at the other location uh, if people wish to, to see me. Idante punikamang asawaki wahang ho tu idante punikamang asawaki wahang ho tu idante punikamang asawaki wahang ho tu By this powerful activity may it lead the cessation of the floods for all beings. May all beings be healthy and happy and may all beings be established in a continuum of non-clinging awareness, the perfect union of wisdom and compassion.